This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. On our first perspective in the program today, and it is a long perspective, I want to think with you about America in the early 21st century, an assessment. With the ongoing financial struggles of the American economy, for example, high unemployment, a stagnant stock market, and credit downrating by Standard & Poor's, Asia, especially China, is gloating. Furthermore, many are now suggesting that America is no longer the world's leading economic giant, but rather a declining one. In this perspective, I hope to address this very question and assess the state of America in the early 21st century. First of all, Asia does indeed seem to be entering a period of triumphalism. Let me explain that. As soon as America's credit rating was downgraded, China, America's largest creditor as a nation, launched its first aircraft carrier out to sea. Although coincidental, the timing was a metaphor for what is occurring on the world scene. Asia is the emerging model of steady, consistent economic policy and sustained growth. America, Europe, and Japan are mired in debt, slow growth, and even recession. The perception worldwide is that the West is in decline and China is in ascendance. Indeed, the International Monetary Fund recently forecast that China's economy adjusted for purchasing power, will be larger than America's by the end of 2016. A recent Pew Global Attitude survey confirmed this perception, with a majority of respondents in the United Kingdom and China stating that China will eventually replace America as the world's great superpower. Even 46% of Americans believe that. But is this correct? The Economist, a magazine coming out of Great Britain, wisely cautions against such dire predictions. It suggests three caveats. First of all, the economic woes of the West are also those of the East. Slow growth in America will affect economic prospects in Asia as well. Asia, too, is addicted to American debt. In so far as this finances imports from Asia, which then invests some of its proceeds back into America. Second, many Asian nations are suffering from serious problems of their own. Of the three largest, Indonesia and India especially are facing crises of confidence over their own government's failure to deal with corruption at the heart of their political systems. Even China is facing political protests, as the recent high-speed train crash demonstrated. And finally, number three, Asian triumphalism is rather premature. Western consumers remain large contributors to Asian growth. America's defense spending absolutely dwarfs China's. No matter which projection one follows, China will still be per capita less than half as wealthy as America. In short, there is no doubt that Asia, especially China, is in ascendance, but it is premature to conclude that China 
will surpass America in all categories. In 2011, that is an unwarranted conclusion. By 2020-25, we'll have to see. Second major part of this perspective as we assess America in the early 21st century. Our world is undergoing one of the most revolutionary periods of change in history. The nature of that change is fundamentally technological. Let me explain. As columnist Tom Friedman has suggested, globalization and information technology have combined to produce a systemic change in how the world connects and communicates. He writes, thanks to cloud computing, robotics, 3G wireless connectivity, Skype, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, Twitter, the iPad, and cheap internet-enabled smartphones, the world has gone from connected to hyper-connected. This set of developments is probably the single most important trend in our world today. Friedman goes on to argue that the merger of globalization and information technology is driving huge productivity gains, especially in recessionary times where employers are finding it easier, cheaper, and more necessary than ever to replace labor with machines, computers, robots, and talented foreign workers. It used to be that only cheap foreign manual labor was easily available. Now, cheap foreign genius is easily available. This explains why workers poor, good, are poorer and good jobs do exist, but those good jobs require more education and technical skills. Another effect of this combination of globalization and information technology is the super-empowering of individuals, enabling them to challenge hierarchies and traditional authority figures, from business to science to government. This enables the creation of powerful minorities and making governing harder and minority rule easier. A synopsis of this reality is simple but profound. We are increasingly taking easy credit, routine work, government jobs, and entitlements away from the middle class. At a time when it takes more skill to get and hold a decent job, at a time when citizens have more access to media to organize, protest, and challenge authority, and at a time when the same merge of globalization information technology is creating huge wages for people with global skills, thus widening income gaps and fueling resentments even more. So we have the relationship between America and Asia. We have information technology and globalization merging. Thirdly, I think it's important for us to think critically about several key assumptions about the American economy. Michael Barone, who's the resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, has commented extensively on the contrasting models of America's economy and the role of the state in these models. He contrasts Michigan and Texas. The political economy of Michigan, from the perspective of history, is most instructive. Originally, the Midwest's economy was built on its agriculture, only later did it develop its industrial base. The migration from farm to factory 
occurred between 1890 and into about 1970. Barone chooses Michigan as the archetype of this Midwest model. He writes, This Michigan model was based on the progressive New Deal assumption that, after the transition from farm to factory, the best way to secure growth was through big companies and big labor unions. Especially in Michigan, among the big three auto companies, we saw this model manifested. These three corporations, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, created demand for their products through advertising and what's now come to be known as plain and planned obsolescence. And then the United Auto Workers, the primary auto union in that state, ensured that productivity gains were shared by the workers. Nearly 40% as a result of this of Michigan voters lived in UAW households and constituted the base vote of the Liberal Democratic Party. Liberalism in that period, from about the 1960s through the early 90s, saw Michigan as the wave of the future, huge corporations and powerful labor unions. The corollary to this assumption was that backward states such as Texas would see the light and catch up. What has happened? A couple of statistics to indicate what's occurred. Michigan in 1970 had about 9 million people. In 2010, it had a population of 10 million people. In contrast, in 1970, Texas had a population of 10 million people. In 2010, it had a population of 25 million people. In 1970, Detroit was the fifth largest metro area in the United States. But today, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex is about to surpass San Francisco as the fourth largest metropolis in the United States. And Detroit, which had been number five, is way behind. One must confront the truth. Now, this is a provocative statement. But one must confront the truth that adversarial labor unions help bring about this remarkable decline, and one must conclude failure of the Michigan model. As a result of adversarial unionism, labor costs went up, creating an incentive for corporations to seek new technology that would increase productivity and cheaper labor from other states and other nations. That's a common sense result. That's not evil. That is reasonable, and it makes sense. When you contrast it with southern states, for example, there was no adversarial union movement. Hence, management and labor collaborated to both increase productivity and focus on higher quality control. But also, as a part of the Michigan model, the United Auto Workers negotiated significant provisions in their contracts called 30 and out. Thus, in Michigan, UAW workers began retiring after 30 years of work. 
But that was long before Medicare age benefits were available to cover the medical costs. Hence, the UAW began demanding billions of dollars in retiree health care benefit programs, which more than anything else has contributed to the virtual bankruptcy of the big three. Barone goes on, quote, Michigan is an extreme example of what has afflicted the industrial Midwest. Big corporations were replaced by big government as the leading employer, and public employee unions replaced industrial unions as the chief financiers of the Democratic Party. And in effect, public employee unions have become in the Midwest a mechanism by which taxpayer money in the form of union dues permanently finances a lobby with a vested interest in higher spending and less accountability. Close that quote from Michael Barone. This model in the Midwest, and especially focusing in states like Michigan and Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, is unraveling. And the repudiation of this model has been played out in the state of Wisconsin, powerfully so. Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin successfully challenged the powerful public employee union and won. Even the special and costly recall elections in Wisconsin of just a few weeks ago were won by most of Walker's supporters. It is also important to remember that during this difficult recession, it was Texas that created nearly 50% of the nation's jobs over the last several years. It was not Michigan. Is there a connection between this job creation miracle in Texas and the fact that Texas has low taxes and light government regulation? Is it possible that the absence of powerful adversarial unionism in Texas is also a factor? There's little doubt that the Michigan model is dead. Is the Texas model the wave of the future? I'm not a prophet. I don't know the answer to that question. But there's little doubt that there is a significant lesson to be learned by comparing what happened in Michigan and what is occurring now in Texas. Can we learn from this contrast? Can we learn from distilling down the differences and trying to get clarity for where we should be going in the future? It's important to think about this. Finally, in this comment and perspective on thinking of America at the beginning of the 21st century in assessment, I want to float a series of comments as I think with you about virtue and the perceived decline of America. One of my favorite columnists is David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times. He recently identified the vigorous virtues, they are his words, that help to explain America's development as a nation with the most remarkable economy in world history, namely the virtues of self-reliance, personal responsibility, industriousness, and passion for freedom. There's little disagreement about these virtues and their importance to America's heritage. In my view, these virtues, again, self-reliance, personal responsibility, industriousness, and a passion for freedom, help to explain why America as a nation, with its unique institutions, developed the way it did. 
What is not as clear is why they no longer seem to characterize the American character. Is government the problem? David Brooks summarizes the typical conservative Republican narrative in this way. Over the years, government has grown and undermined these virtues. Wall Street financiers no longer have to behave prudently because they know that government will bail them out. Middle-class families no longer need to practice thrift and frugality to save for the future because they know that government will force future generations to pay for their retirement. Dads no longer need to marry the women they impregnate because government will step in to support the children of single moms. The massive state with all its regulations and complex tax codes thwart the entrepreneurial spirit and dynamism necessary to create jobs and move the economy forward. Thus, the Republican narrative goes, we must pare back the state to revive personal responsibility and private initiative. Now, dear people, I'm a rather conservative individual, and there's much in this narrative that I agree with and find compelling. However, there is something missing in the explanation of why these virtues I listed above no longer seem to apply to America. There is a spiritual dimension that motivates and undergirds these virtues. The state cannot force people to change. The state cannot force people to integrate these virtues and make them a forceful part of the warp and woof of life. In my judgment, these virtues are produced when a person has been changed by Jesus Christ. There are deeper structural issues that are at the heart of America's challenges. But in my view as a Christian, what America needs is not simply a change in administrations. It needs a heart transplant. America needs to once again experience the gentle breezes of spiritual revival and renewal that have shaped and molded this nation since the first great awakening of the 1700s. In fact, you cannot understand the American Revolution if you do not come to terms with this first revival. Furthermore, you cannot understand the abolition of slavery, the temperance movement, the women's rights movement, the end of child labor, if you do not come to terms with the second great awakening of the 1800s. Furthermore, it is impossible to understand how the urban masses met the challenges of industrialism if you do not come to terms with the D.L. Moody revivals in post-Civil War America. Finally, the 1950s were one of the most important decades of the 20th century, and the spiritual revival that swept America in that decade produced a unity in face of atheistic communism and laid the groundwork for the civil rights movement of the next decade. In short, America's problems, America's challenges, America's difficulties are not fundamentally political or financial. They are spiritual. And my prayer has been these last years is that God in his grace will send another revival to our spiritually impoverished nation. As we assess where America is in the early years of the 21st century, we better get back to spiritual renewal and revival. Or in my view, America will continue its decline. 
That's the only solution to America's problems. A change in administration in Washington isn't going to solve the problem. That doesn't mean that's not an important issue, but the root cause is spiritual. We had better come to terms with that, or the decline of America will continue. Let me conclude our program today with a second perspective, albeit a short one, on Al-Qaeda 10 years later. As U.S. SEALs killed Osama bin Laden, they brought home a significant amount of intelligence from more than 100 computer storage devices, including thumb drives, DVDs, and CDs, and more than a dozen computers or hard drives collected from his compound. According to the columnist David Ignatius, three major themes emerge from all this intelligence gained from bin Laden's compound. One, bin Laden retained until his death a passion to launch a significant attack against the United States, ideally linked to the 10th anniversary of 9-11. From the data, there is nothing specific about successful recruiting of operatives to carry out such an attack, but it's there. Number two, bin Laden was a hands-on chief executive, put that in quotation marks. He maintained a significant role in planning operations and in all kinds of planning decisions. He was not detached, but deeply involved at almost all levels of al-Qaeda. His successor, Zawahiri, does not enjoy that support or that allegiance that bin Laden did. Finally, bin Laden and al-Qaeda were suffering acutely from the drone attacks in the tribal areas of Pakistan. He refers to that throughout all of the intelligence that was gathered. It was increasingly difficult for them to train, to communicate, to travel, and to recruit because of these attacks. Furthermore, bin Laden worried that al-Qaeda was losing support and status among Muslims and that the United States had succeeded in distancing al-Qaeda in Muslim perceptions from the core values of Islam. The al-Qaeda that emerges from these documents is a badly battered and disoriented group. It is an organization that is down in the words of David, David Ignatius, but not out. There are no specific plots targeting the United States from these documents, but all recognize that it is what we do not know about al-Qaeda that is most dangerous. As we approach the 10th anniversary of 9-11, we must thank the Lord for the vigilance of our government and our allies in so successfully decimating this murderous organization called Al-Qaeda. But it is also imperative that we petition God for his ongoing mercy in checking the evil that Al-Qaeda represents. It is a dastardly entity that remains a serious and viable threat to the United States. As a dastardly entity, it is a threat. It is real. But in my view, our prayer should be, may God in his mercy keep al-Qaeda in check. May God in his grace, in his mercy, and his compassion be that pro providential supplanter of evil. May he check them. May he cause them to be decimated. And may he be that gracious buffer protecting us, protecting our families. We do not deserve that, but in these last 10 years, God mercifully has done it. May he continue to do that 
to His glory and for His grace. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.